The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Father, what a blessing it is to, to be in your house with your people. Father, to set our hearts together on the public declaration of your, your love and your promises in Christ Jesus. Father, there are many of us here who are spent. We've been overcharged, Lord. There's some who are brokenhearted. They've been betrayed. They've even seen their own lack of faithfulness, their own lack of courage, Father. To get everything done, Father, that you've given us to do in Christ, Father, we... We spend ourselves, Lord, to be obedient, and we fall short many times, Lord. So thank you, Lord, that we can come into your house. We can hear your word preached to us. We can hear of your great love for us. You feed us, Father, with your word to strengthen us and encourage us to do everything, the whole counsel of God. Father, if there's someone here who doesn't know you this way, the love that you give in Christ for the kingdom of heaven's sake, Father. Father, I pray you'd open their heart to hear your word. They'd be transformed. Father, their life would be changed. As our lives are changed, Father, Father, we pray for that growth in our lives. We, we pray that you'd strengthen us to, to do your, your will in your church, Father, to, to, to see disciples raised to go into the world, Father, to do all these things and to love each other as Christ has loved us and has given his life for us, Father. And all these things, Lord, we, are, we fall short. Father, help us to turn aside from ourselves and lay hold of the word of life, the, the gift of your Son, Father. We want to see Jesus. We lift up our pastor, Father, to, that he would be strengthened according to your spirit, Father, according to your will to preach these things to us, Father, that we would receive them, Father, and we would do them, and we'd be changed in, in the midst of a, a dying and lost world, Father. Do your work in us, for Christ's sake, Father, in his name we pray. Amen. invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4. We pick up in our continuing study of this brief letter of James. I want to take an opportunity before we begin to just to thank Roger Beardmore for filling the pulpit last week, bringing God's word so faithfully. He is a dear friend and a gift to our congregation, and I appreciate his his work and his ministry and his willingness to to stand and preach in my stead. And I appreciate your prayers. I did not pass out or fail my test last week, so it's a good thing. 
It's a good thing I was able to tune into the live stream and watch, uh, watch the part that's broadcast so I could at least uh, study along with you while dripping sweat in my car. But it worked. It worked. But this morning we go back to James uh, chapter 4. I want us to go back to verse 11. Uh, we began two weeks ago uh, looking at uh, verses 11 and 12. Um, I want to sort of um, retouch on that and then move our way all the way down through verse 17 this morning and to see the connections there. James writes, beginning in verse 11, these words. He says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges a brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Let's pray together. God, your word is powerful. Your word speaks your truth. Your word is the sword that you wield in your hand as you operate on our souls. And so we pray that your spirit would search our hearts this morning. He would would shine the floodlight of your truth into the dark recesses of of our souls. Expose things we need to see about ourselves. And draw us to repentance and faith. And we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. We have uh, made our way uh, almost uh, to, the, to the final chapter of the book of James. And one of the things that has been sort of a, a theme that has weaved its way throughout the book, sometimes more prominently, other times sort of behind the scenes, has been a call from James to exercise humility. And a a challenge from James against a sort of a sinful pride that all of us are tempted towards. If this were a musical, we would say that the theme of humility is sort of the melody um, the melody line of the tune that's playing its way throughout the whole score. It's often on the very surface of the text, but when it's not on the surface, it fades into the background, and yet it finds itself all the way throughout. So James is constantly calling us to exercise humility, constantly calling us to humility, constantly calling to look at ourselves in the mirror and challenge ourselves in the area of sinful pride. He's been arguing for us that much of the sinful behavior that we exercise, both in life in general and then within the body of the church, is really driven underneath by a dreadful, sinful sort of a pride. He talked about sins of the mouth earlier on in the book. 
And underneath those sins of the mouth is a, a sinful pride that is the root out of which those things grow. He's talked about um, accusing God of tempting us. Again, a sinful thing that grows out of the root of pride. And when we get to chapter 4, he continues this theme and speaks to this issue of pride again and this issue of humility again. The scriptures speak to the issue of sinful pride and a call to humility all throughout. You could go to the Old Testament and look through the Psalms, all the way back to Psalm 31, verse 23, where the psalmist writes, The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Or Proverbs 11, verse 2, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble, there's wisdom. There's wisdom. Proverbs 29, 23, One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. And if you flip to the New Testament, Peter, we studied not too long ago, speaks to the issue. He calls those to whom he writes in verse 5 of chapter 5 to this. He says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Why? Well, because God opposes the proud. But His grace is given to the humble. And this is just a, a sort of a, a brief, uh, quick little sketch. It's, it's a theme that sort of resonates over and over and over, both in the Old and the New Testament. Underneath most of our sinful behavior is a sinful pride. It becomes the root out of which all of these nasty weeds grow in our life. And the call in response to that is to identify it, to admit it, to confess it before the Lord, to repent of it, to turn from it, and to embrace and pursue a life of humility. A life of humility. The problem comes, the problem comes with the reality that pride is quite obvious for us to recognize in other people, but it's painfully, painfully difficult for us to recognize and admit in our own selves. In fact, we often need others to help us see it. It shows up in many sort of subtle ways in our life, as James has been talking about. But at its height, really, sinful pride is an attempt to unseat God and to take the throne for ourselves. It's, a, it's the sin that's at the heart of what makes Satan, Satan. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 and 13, I believe Isaiah the prophet uh, gives us a glimpse into the heart of Satan before his fall. He says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day, o day star, O son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend above heaven, above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. It is the heartbeat and the thrust of the thought process of Satan at the very core of what makes him who he is. This, this desire, this, this desire to plan and to try to usurp God's authority, to overthrow His rule and to take His place, to rise above God, to rule in His stead. And it's at the heart of the sinful sort of plans of the heart of Satan to do such things 
I will do this and I will do that and I will ascend and I will arise and I will take the throne myself. Now, although our pride doesn't often manifest in such overt ways as that, there are very few of us who wake up in the morning and say, well, it's a beautiful day outside. I think I'll try to overthrow God this morning. Let me see how I can go about doing that. It does show up in a lot of other ways. And James identifies in chapter 4, verses 11 through 17, two particular ways, two particularly uh, dreadful ways that we pridefully attempt to play God. Two ways that we pridefully attempt to usurp God, kick Him off the throne, and take our place on His throne. The first, he tells us, is by presuming to be the judge of other people's lives. He says that we pridefully play God by exalting ourselves to the place of judge and judging other people as though we had that right and authority which belongs rightfully only to God. And then secondly, he tells us that we pridefully sort of play God by presuming that we are in control of our own lives. By presuming that we are the ones who control our own lives. That we are the ones who have the right and the authority to control where we're going, what we're going to do, the future, how long we're going to live, what kinds of of success we're going to have in our life. And these are both ways that James identifies for us here in chapter 4, that we pridefully play God. That we sort of express our pride in ways of, of trying to take His place and do things that really only He has the authority to do. We saw the first piece of this last, or two weeks ago, in the first few verses here, where James writes, beginning in verse 11, Don't speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother, or judges a brother, speaks evil against the law, and judges the law. And then he goes on to say, But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there's only one lawgiver, and there's only one judge. He is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? And James introduced us to that first way that we pridefully play God, by by assuming that we have the right to sit in judgment of other people. And the way that that expresses itself, sort of practically in everyday life, is through critical speech. It's It's through slander of other people. It's through putting ourselves in the place of judgment, evaluating other people's lives, casting our judgment, and then spreading that judgment to other people who we think might be interested in hearing how we've judged our brother. And we looked in depth at those things last week. Alistair Begg summarizes that piece by saying this. He says, Every day in a thousand ways we're tempted to make ourselves the center of the universe. One of the ways in which I know I'm the center of the universe is when I think I'm better than everyone else. It helps me feel much more important when I can pass along a little something that makes someone else look bad. And so James says we do this. We, we, we slander other people. We make false statements. We misrepresent other people. We selectively take excerpts from what they've said and what they've done. We sort of put those pieces together. We, we place our own interpretation on that. And then we spread it around to other people sort of as news, sort of as gossip, sort of as prayer requests, and so on. And at the end of it all, it's really just slander. 
And James says, don't do that. Don't speak evil against each other. And furthermore, don't take it to the next step, which is judgment, which says, I now have the right to then not only evaluate what you say and what you do and spread it around to other people, but I now get to judge the value of that and judge what your motives are and judge what usefulness you have in the kingdom of God. And I can cast that judgment to other people so that they will then think the same of you as I have thought of you. James says that when we do that, the reason we ought not do that is because of two reasons. Number one, it violates the law of love. We are called above all things to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor as ourselves, to speak critically of other people, to spread slanderous comments about other people, uh, to spread negative information about other people, even if it's true but doesn't need to be said, to, to, to cast judgment on other people really violates that basic law of love my neighbor as myself. It violates that basic law of life that says I should treat you the way I would want you to treat me. And nobody wants other people to do that to them. And so it violates love. And we saw that the scriptures call us to, 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 to things like uh, covering over sins. Love covers over a multitude of sins. It's to a man's honor to overlook an offense. Not to judge and to spread unkind words. But the deeper issue, James tells us, is this. That underneath all of that critical speech and judgmentalism is really a sinful pride that exalts ourselves to the place of God. We are really playing God when we do that. That's why James says, and we didn't talk much about this that last time, there's only one lawgiver and judge. There's only one person who has the right to issue the law and to judge people by it. And by the way, it's not you. That's what James is leaving unsaid there. There's only one that has the right to do that. There's only one who has the authority to do that. There's only the one that, that made the law. And there's only one who has the right to make people stand accountable before it. And to cast a judgment. It's the Lord himself. And that's why James says, who in the world are you? Who are you to do that? Who made you the lawmaker? Who made you the judge? And his, his condemnation is, is essentially saying, when you do that, you are presuming to play God. You are literally unseating God off the throne, putting yourself there and acting as though you belong and have a right to act out of that kind of eternal authority. In Romans chapter 14, Paul speaks to this issue. He says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Who, who, do you, who are you to, 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 to judge somebody else? Each person stands on his own before the Lord. The Lord is the one who has the right to judge people, not you. The whole context of Romans 14, at least this portion of it, deals with a conflict that's broken out in the church. And the conflict is essentially a conflict between vegetarians and meat-eaters. And there's all these various pieces to this conflict. But in the mix of this conflict, people have sort of factionalized and, and they've taken sides and they're speaking critically of one another and they're judging one another based on how they're doing in this area of eating and drinking. And so in the mix of that, one of the things that Paul enters into the conversation, he says, regardless of who's right and who's wrong, you're all dead wrong in the fact that you're judging each other and nobody has a right to judge one another. That belongs 
to God. It belongs to God. Verse 10 of chapter 14 of Romans. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of whom? We don't stand before the judgment seat of Greg. You don't stand before the judgment seat of John. You don't stand before the judgment seat of Ray. Every one of us will one day stand before the judgment seat of God. Because he's the only one who has the right to judge and the authority to judge. And he's the only one who has all the information on which to judge. He's the only one who's qualified. First Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. You remember the Old Testament? Do you remember the context of this? God has commissioned Samuel to anoint the next king, and he goes to the house of Jesse, and he looks at all the sons, and he's trying to discern who it is God has called out and set apart to be the next king. The Lord said to Samuel, Don't look at his appearance or on the height of his stature, speaking of the oldest, one that looked like a king, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord... He looks on the heart. The only thing I know about you are the excerpts I see on the outward appearance of your life. The only thing you know about me are the excerpts you see on the outward appearance of my life. But the Lord knows your heart. The Lord knows my heart. He knows every thought that we ever think. He knows every motive that, we have ever, uh, that we've ever acted out of. He knows why we do the things we do, not just the things that we do. And he knows how we do them. He has all of the information that he needs to make a right and true judgment of us. But we don't have anywhere near the information we need to make a right and true judgment of our brother. And so to do so is to put ourselves in God's place and to presume to play him. He's the one who has all the facts. Chuck Swindoll said this. He said, far too often Christians criticize others before we get all the facts. We observe an event, we catch a few words of a conversation, or we gather a a handful, not a headful, a handful of random facts. We then leap to conclusions and start flapping our jaws about it. The jabbering catches on and it spreads, and before you know it, the gossip becomes news. There's nothing more contagious in a church. A student body, a business, a staff, an organization, or a home than a negative spirit. That infection is contagious. It spreads like a cold in kindergarten. He's right. So this judgmentalism that James speaks of, it is really a grievous, grievous sort of a sin because it is an attempt to play God, to rule in His stead. It is a usurping of his authority. It's a presumption that we are him. And James says there's another way that we presume to play him. And that's beginning in verse 13. It's when we pridefully presume that we're in control of our lives. That we're the ones who are in control of life. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town, spend a year there and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. Again, it's arrogance. It's pride. 
that he's, he's, he's sort of attacking here. And another manifestation of that is this presuming we're in control. What is he talking about here? He begins this little piece by saying, Come now, you who say. Now, we don't talk like that anymore. Rarely do you walk around in a group and stand up and say, Come now, you who say. It's another way of just saying, listen up. Pay close attention to what I'm about to say. You need to hear this because it's really important. Listen up. Who is he talking to here? Who is it that, 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 that you that are, are to come now and listen? Well, there's quite a bit of debate about that out in the theological world. Some argue that he's speaking to outsiders, people outside of the church, lost people. Other people argue that James is calling this, these words to the attention of believers within the church. It seems to me from the context that James is speaking to people who are still within the congregation of the, the local body of believers. Some of them are probably believers. Others of them are probably not. But regardless of whether they are or they're not, uh, people who truly know Jesus as Lord and Savior, they're people within the local body of the church. He's speaking to the church. And I think that really for two reasons. One, because outsiders, frankly, could care less about God's will, and he's going to speak to the issue of God's will. And secondly, outsiders probably could care less what James has to say about how they live their lives. He's talking to people, it seems, from the, the context here, who are within the church, who are tradesmen, who are merchants, who are some sort of business people. Uh, they're, they're business people who uh, make a living by, by, by traveling out and conducting business, maybe some sort of an international business. They travel to one place and they buy goods and they take them somewhere else and they go to sell them. It's a business sort of a venture. You know, it, it's, it worked then the same way it works now. You go somewhere and you try and buy goods low, and you go to some other place where people need those goods and there's a scarcity of it, and you then sell them how? You sell them higher. And in the mix of that, you make for yourself what? A profit. Yeah, you make yourself a profit and you earn a living. So it seems to be that that's what's going on here. We're talking to, or James is speaking, to business people, to people who are, are tradesmen, who are merchants, who are going about their business. They're planning their year. They're planning to go out and to conduct business out on the road. They're strategizing their business plan. You can see from the text that they've identified a location where they're going to travel. They've already identified how long they're going to stay, sort of the duration of the trip. And they've already planned on the profits that they're going to make in their uh, business endeavor. And for this, James is about to light them up. He is literally about to light them up, and he's going to issue to them a stern and startling rebuke. And we find ourselves asking, well, why? What is James so upset about? What's he so worked up about? What's so wrong with going about and conducting business? What's so wrong about buying low and selling high and trying to make a, a profit and a living? What's so wrong with, with planning and strategizing for such things? Is it wrong to conduct business? Is it wrong to... To do business planning and strategizing? Is it wrong to, to make a profit? Nope. None of those things are part of James' primary concern. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the problem then? The problem is the way they're going about that business. The problem, James has is the attitude out of which they are, they are launching those activities. The way that they're going about their planning, the way that they're going about their strategizing, they are doing so as though God does not exist. 
They're making their plans and they never once stop to consider God in the equation at all. They never even, they never even stop to consider that God might be interested in their plans. That God might have plans as well. They never stop to think about it. They just go about their own planning and their own strategizing and their own business venture and they go about it ignoring God and ignoring His will for their lives and ignoring that He might have a will for their business dealings. We have a word for this. They're living as practical atheists. They're living like practical atheists. They, they go to church on the Lord's Day. They check the religious box. They recognize God. They may even worship Him in the congregation of His people. But Monday through Saturday, they live and they operate as though He doesn't exist. He never enters their decision-making. He never enters into the equation when they're trying to decide where to go and what to do and how to conduct their business and how to live their lives. He doesn't enter their planning the key word in the text is we. They're, they're saying, hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go here and we're going to do that. And we're going to do this kind of business. And we're going to make this kind of profit. And it's all planned as though God has nothing to do with any of it. They're arrogantly, pridefully planning their lives as though they were in charge. As though God has nothing to do with it. They're living as though God has no claim to their life, to any part of their life except Sunday. If there's ever been a description of American culture today, I think this is probably a good one. It's such an, a relevant issue for us in our culture. Even still, despite whatever persecution of Christianity might be going on or rising in our nation at the moment, when surveys go out, still most people identify themselves with Christ as Christian people. And yet, when you look at sort of the behavior across the board in the nation, it is very clear and very abundant. You don't even have to look very hard or very far to find that the, the sort of the, the type of Christianity that's claimed by most people has absolutely no practical application in the way they live their lives at all. It has no application to the way they conduct their business. It has no application to the way they engage in relationships. It has no application in the way they treat other people. It has no application in the way they plan for their retirement. It has no application in anything. It's just simply an identification by name only. And the only application it has is perhaps on Sundays when they choose to not go to the beach but to go to a church instead for a minute. Their life, ethics... Decision-making, business dealings, politics, activism, all of those things are untouched by any regard for what God wants or what God thinks. None whatsoever. Monday through Saturday lives solely for the flesh. As though the whole world just revolves around them and God doesn't enter the picture at all. That is the reality of most of American Christianity around us. It is a Christianity that identifies with Christ. It may worship with God's people on Sunday, but life outside of that worship gathering is simply a life lived for self. Organized by self, planned by self, orchestrated for self, with no regard whatsoever for what God thinks or wants or desires. A good quick diagnostic question for you. What if tomorrow it was absolutely proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that God does not exist? 
What would be different in my life and business practices? What would be different? If it was found out tomorrow that God did not exist and could be proved definitively, what would be different about my life and business practices? Would they just go on as normal? If they would just go on as normal, then that would seem to indicate that he has no impact on that to begin with. James argues that that kind of living, that that kind of Christianity, it's not consistent with genuine faith. It is, in fact, he says, arrogant and boastful and foolish. And James identifies really three foolish assumptions that underlie what's going on with these merchants and these tradesmen. Three foolish assumptions that we sometimes make as well. And the first one is this. They foolishly assume that the future is in their hands. Did you see that? Come you who say... Today or tomorrow, we're going to go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. The New American Standard Translation says this, Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. Contemporary English Translation says it this way, What do you know about tomorrow? They've got the whole thing planned out, right? They've got it planned out for a year down the road. They know what's going to happen in a year. They've made the plans. They've already put it in the bank and counted on it. They know what the future holds. They've already planned for it. And James says to them, you boastful fool. You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. You're acting as though you can control the future. You don't even know what's going to happen to you tomorrow. They're saying, we will do this and we will do that. God says, what do you know about tomorrow? They're planning out the whole year, taking for granted that they have that much time. God says, you can't even be certain about another minute, much less what tomorrow is going to hold. They're living as though they were independent. And God says, you're not independent, you're just ignorant. You're living as though you're in charge of time and eternity. And you can plan it however you want it. You're ignorant to the fact that I'm the one who's in charge of tomorrow and next month and next year. And you haven't a clue what I've decided to do then. And you haven't even bothered to check. You're living as though the future is in your hands. They're living as though the future was a guarantee. You realize this morning, right? That the future is not guaranteed for you or me or anyone. I had someone tell me when I was younger, your birth certificate doesn't have an expiration date, right? You don't know when you're going to die. It could be tomorrow. There's no guarantee that we're going to live another day or another week or another month. We're not in charge of the future. God's in charge of the future. And when we live as though all of life can be planned, and it's all within our hands, we're living as though we assume we can control the future. Jesus dealt with this in Luke chapter 12 by telling a parable. And in verse 16 he says this, He told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself this, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, Here's what I'll do. I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger barns. And there I'll store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool! This night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, 
Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What is the attitude of this man in the parable that Jesus gives? He's coming to build these barns and I'm going to store up more and more and more stuff for my retirement so that uh, when I get to my retirement I can just sit back and eat, drink and be lazy and do nothing. And he's planning all this as though he's guaranteed a retirement. As though he's guaranteed the opportunity to eat, drink, and be merry. And the message to him is, you're a fool. Not only are you not going to enjoy your retirement, but you're not even going to enjoy tomorrow because you're going to be dead tonight. And now what happens to all your plans? You see, we're not in charge of our future. God is. Proverbs 27, verse 1, Do not boast about tomorrow. For you do not know what a day may bring. Here's the reality. Only God knows the future. Only God knows the future. Regardless of what Madame Marie down the street, the local palm reader, might tell you, only God knows the future. Despite what we sinfully assume sometimes, only God knows the future. To make our plans as though tomorrow is guaranteed is arrogant and it's foolish. Because God is the one who has both the right and the power to control the future. It's God's right to control the future. It's God who has the power to do so. And so our calling then is to live in light of the constant reality that God is the author of the future. It's not evil to make plans. It's evil to make plans as though they don't include God, as though we can control everything that's going to happen down the road. We make our plans, but we hold our plans loosely with the realization that God is the one who has control of the future. We plan and we strive and we work, but we do so with a real realization in the back of our minds that God is the one who commands our destiny. Not us. Here's another diagnostic question. It'll help you identify if you're holding your future plans in submission to God. Here's the question. Listen closely. Answer this honestly. How agitated, how angry, how anxious, how distraught do you become when God intervenes into your plans and changes your direction? I'll say it again. How angry agitated, anxious, distraught do you become when God intervenes in your plans and changes your direction? If we've got our lives planned in such a way that when God intervenes and changes the direction of our lives, it drives us to anger and anxiety and distress and agitation, it's probably a good sign that we're holding too tightly to the reality or to the thought process that we somehow have control over the future. That we've not yet released that to the Lord. What happens in your life when your planned career path takes a different turn? When the job you've been pursuing or investing in for many years uh, disappears and all of a sudden you're having to start over. What happens when in your life when, when sort of your retirement plans are changed without... Your consent. What happens in your life when the one person that you wanted to marry suddenly doesn't want to marry you and you have to start that process over again? 
What happens when there's some unexpected setback or tragedy or, or grief or difficulty or injury that arises that you haven't planned for, that you didn't ask for, that wasn't a part of your future plans? How do you react to that? How you react is an indication. It's an indication of whether you think you control the future or whether you've released the future to the Lord and to His will. You see, a major piece of coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in salvation is a releasing of our will for the future to Him. It's coming to Christ and confessing our sin and confessing our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting and turning and embracing the Lord Jesus Christ and saying, Lord, I'm going to follow you with the rest of my life. But a piece of that is saying, here's my future, Lord. It now belongs to you. I relinquish my rights to plan my future. Do with it as you will. But these people have no sense of that in this in this context of James. They think that they control the future. There's another thing that they've assumed. They've assumed that their life is in their hands. That's why James says to them, what is your, what is your life? You're, you're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. They're assuming not only that they have control over the future, they're assuming that they have control over life. They're assuming that they have plenty of time to do their business. They're assuming that they've got all the time in the world, that they can plan for a year, and that it's guaranteed, and that, that somehow that, 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 that year that they plan for is certain. They're assuming that they're going to live to a ripe old age. This is so prevalent in our culture, isn't it? We all subtly assume that. We all subtly assume that we're, we're just entitled to live to 80, 90 years old and die of some painless disease. That's quick. Right? Isn't that what we all assume? And when all of a sudden circumstances crash in that don't play that out, we're shocked and we're in dismay and we can't possibly understand. It's particularly challenging in our culture because we have so many means at our disposal for saving and extending life that people in the rest of the world don't have. I mean, just about anything you catch can be cured. Isn't that right? I mean, I get sick, I go right to the doctor. I have access and I'm able to go, and they've got an assortment of all sorts of little white and different colored things that I can shove in my mouth and swallow with water, and whatever it is that's been bothering me goes away usually. And if that doesn't work, they can admit me into one of the hospitals to which I have access, and somebody can take some sort of a, a, of a thing and stick it over my face, and I go to sleep, and I wake up, and whatever was a problem is now gone, and I'm healing up and getting better. We have doctors, we have medicines, we have diagnostic tools, we have surgeries, we have treatments, and we're shocked, and we're appalled, and we're dismayed when somebody can't be saved, and they die. Because we've come to expect that we're guaranteed a long life. And James says, what is your life? It's just a mist. It's, just a, it's, just a, it's like a morning fog. It rolls out for just a second and as soon as the sun rises, it dissipates and it's gone. It's like your breath outside in a cold night when you breathe. You breathe and you see it for a second and it's gone. 
It's just a way of James saying, you, you're counting on the fact that you're guaranteed a long life. And the reality is, even if your life is long, it's still but a, just a tiny little mist that's here and it's gone. The point he's making is our lives are short and we're not guaranteed tomorrow. The Psalms, Psalm 90, Psalm 102, Psalm 103, all speak to this same issue. The time is moving quickly and life is short and we're not guaranteed anything. Do you feel the passing of time? I mean, I feel it. you, You feel the passing of time and you feel its effects. That we don't always live like we're feeling it, but there are those sober moments where something happens and all of a sudden it snaps us too and we realize, what in the world happened? What happened to time? What happened to my life? Where did it all go? I mean, our bodies change. That's a sign that time's moving along. Our children grow up. And we look and we go, what happened to you? Yesterday you were like that and now you're like that. Where did the time go? The technology around us advances at a lightning speed. So, I mean, it's like the stuff that was, you know, I was used to when I was little. It's just like Noah's Ark now. I took my son a couple weeks ago up to Carowinds Amusement Park to go ride some roller coasters. And I had this vivid moment when we were standing in line waiting to go on a ride. And it was just like a flashback to being a teenager in my, in my high school church youth group when we used to go to Carowinds and youth trips and ride rides. And, and I'm telling you, it seemed to me in that moment like it was yesterday. Like it was literally yesterday that that was going on. I'm watching these teenagers running around around us and I'm thinking... Wait a minute. That was me yesterday and this is me now. And what happened between then and there? Because I sure don't look like them. I don't feel like them. I'm a heck of a lot more scared of this dang roller coaster than I was when I was their age. Just the reality that life moves. It flies. It's a mist. It's here in a moment. And the next thing you know, it's gone. There's some hard realities. Death is no respecter of age. I've buried old people. I've buried young people. I've buried people of all ages in between. God doesn't owe us a certain number of years. He doesn't owe us tomorrow. And we don't know when we'll die. And by the way, that's a good thing. It's a good thing that we don't know when we're going to die, right? That's a, a grace from God that He doesn't tell us. And therefore, James says, it's, it's a fool's errand to think that somehow we're in control of time. To, to somehow think that we're in control of life. Of how long we're going to live and how long we have to do such and such. God is the one who controls life. He's the one who gives us life, and He's ultimately the one who ushers us out of this life. And that time in between when He gives it and when He takes it, it's like a mist. It just goes like that. And we don't know when it's going to come and when it's going to go. And so our call then is to live every day and to plan for the future with sort of an awareness that God is the author of life and death. We have to live our lives for more than just the things of this world. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've never, you've never repented of your sin and entrusted your life to Jesus Christ to save you. 
You need to hear this question that James asked, because he asked, what is your life? What is it? It's like a little mist that appears. If you're not living for the Lord Jesus Christ, you're living for something else. You're living for yourself. You're living for the pleasures of the world. You're living to accumulate wealth. You're living to accumulate things. You're living to accumulate some sort of stature or status or some sort of a, of a, of a, of a, a perspective that other people think of you. But you need to hear James say, all of that stuff, it's a mist that vanishes. You can live for it and you can sell your life out to it, but in a moment it's gone. And when you die, it dies with you. The only hope for people who live here in this world of temporal things, who only have a mist of a life to live, is to entrust our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ who can save our soul and grant us eternal life and then give us a new meaning to the days that we do have here. Give us something new to live for other than the passing things of the world. There's a final assumption that these folks make. They assume a lot of things, that they control life, that they control the future, They finally assume that success is in their hands. Today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade, and we're going to make a profit. They're they're counting on the fact that their planning and their skill is going to guarantee their results. They're counting on their own wit and their own intellect and their own abilities and their own opportunities and their their self-made men who are, are believing that if they just do everything the right way, then it's going to guarantee a certain output. And they've forgotten that our success or failure, just like time and just like the future, is also in God's hands. God is the source of all of our wealth. If I do well in business, if you do well in business, God alone deserves the glory. It's not because of anything that's wonderful about you. Yes, you've worked. Yes, you've shown up. Yes, you've applied yourself. Yes, you've done your best. But at the end of the day, it's God who gave the ability. It's God who gave the opportunity. It's God who gave the intellect. It's God who gave the favor with others. And it's God who's produced the results. To assume that we can be successful in our own strength, in our own skill, in our own wisdom, in our own ability, is to arrogantly assume that we are all-powerful and that we can guarantee our own success. Now, mind you, James is not arguing against planning. He's not arguing against strategizing. He's not arguing against training or mobilizing for success. What he's arguing is it's a fool's errand to do all those things with no reference to God and with no thought for God. And with no sense in your life that as you do those things at the end of the day, it's God who's in control of it all. In God's work, we're called to plan, to strategize, to train, to mobilize. The Apostle Paul models this for us all throughout the New Testament. But we do so with an understanding that it's God who has to generate the results. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6-8, through 8, Speaking of the ministry that he was engaged in, I planted, Apollos watered, but God is the one who gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God alone who gives the growth. 
He who plants and he who waters are one. Each will receive his wages according to his labor. Paul's saying, look, yes, I've planted. Yes, I've done work. Yes, I've done ministry. Apollos has done ministry. He's gone out there and done stuff too. We've exerted. We've worked. We've tried. We've planned. We've mobilized. We've trained. We've gone out and done the stuff. But at the end of the day, if there's any good result from it all, it's because God made it work. It's because God gave the growth. And James is arguing for us a wonderful tension that we have to always keep in mind. And that's this. That it's not God's will for us to sit on our, on our can and do nothing and say, well, if it's God's will, it's going to happen. And it's equally foolish to go out there and live and exert ourselves as though everything depends on us. The tension and the balance is this. We work and we strive and we obey and we go and we train and we mobilize and we act And we give it everything that we've got. And at the end of the day, when we've given it everything that we've got, we say, Lord, I've planted as faithfully as I know how to plant. Now you have to generate the growth. And if any growth comes, then, dear God, you alone deserve the glory. Because it belongs to you. Well, what do these people do? And what do people like them do? James says, here's what you should have done. You should be saying, if the Lord wills. We'll do such and such. If the Lord wills, we'll do it. And he's not talking about just adding that phrase on to the sentence by just saying, here's all my plans, Lord willing. You ever hear people do that? Lord willing. Sometimes I think it's a sincere thing, maybe. But other times it could be used sort of as a little magic charm that you just add on to the statement where I do my own thing and just say Lord willing as though somehow that makes it now baptized. What James is articulating here is this. He's articulating a life that is lived in reference to God. A business venture that is lived in reference to God and in submission to God. A major part of coming to faith in Jesus Christ is dying to ourselves and submitting to His rule. Releasing our future, releasing our control over our lives, Releasing our control over our successes and failures. Releasing our control over how we want the future to go. Over to Him. And saying, God, these things are yours. I live for you. Yes, you've called me to exercise wisdom. Yes, you've called me to get out there in the world and strive to do the best I can to honor you and whatever it is that you've put me into. But at the end of the day, I don't control all these things. You do. I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. I'm not guaranteed any success. I'm not guaranteed to live another day. So if I live another day, it's by your grace. If I experience success in my life, it is by your good grace. If I live to a ripe old age and die of a painless disease quickly at 90-something years old, then it's by your grace. And so the call then here is this. James says, sinful, arrogant pride shows up in our life in a couple of ways when we exalt ourselves to the throne of God and presume to judge other people. And it shows up in our life when we exalt ourselves to the throne of God and act and live and plan as though we're the ones in charge of our own lives, as though He doesn't exist, as though He's just a Sunday add on to our life that we live the rest of the week. 
What is the remedy to it all? Well, it's the same thing James has been saying all throughout. Humble yourself before the Lord. Take a long, hard look in the mirror. And recognize that you're not God. That you don't control the future. That you don't control your life. You don't control success and failure. You don't have anywhere near enough information to be able to to judge other people. All of those things are activities that belong to the Lord. Our responsibility is to humble ourselves and allow the Lord to lift us up. Our responsibility is to humble ourselves before the Lord. To repent of our sin of trying to usurp His authority in many ways in our life. And to say, oh God, my life, my mouth, the way I treat other people, the way I plan my business, the way I plan my family, all of these things, God, are yours. Help me every day to wake up and to live and to move and to breathe and to act as though I'm living under your sovereignty in my life. As though you're the one who's in control. As though you have the right to do with me whatever you want to do. That I might live my days, whatever days I have, in a way that would bear fruit for your glory and for your kingdom. That's the call. Let's pray together. Lord, there are some who have come into this place this morning who don't know you, Jesus. Maybe they've heard the gospel. Maybe they've heard the stories. But they've never come to that place in their life where they have confessed their own sin, their own rebellion. Where they've taken the crown off of their own head and kneeled down and placed it at your feet. Where they've recognized that they don't own their own lives, but they belong to you. They've not confessed their sin. They've not embraced you as Lord and Savior. They've not released their lives to your sovereign control and lordship. I pray that they would hear this morning what James has to say. Life is a mist. It vanishes before you know it. There's no guarantee of a tomorrow or a next week or a next month or a next year. The only hope of doing something valuable today and living for eternity is to be saved. And now is the moment of salvation. For that one that's been resisting, Lord, I pray that you would destroy their defenses and draw them to Christ this morning. And for those who are part of the church, who maybe uh, were like those who are part of James's church, who need to hear and be confronted with the reality they've pridefully been presuming to take your place in the way that they speak of others and judge and in the way that they live their lives apart from your will with no consideration of your plans for that man and for that woman Lord draw them this morning to yourself draw them in repentance and may they find mercy and grace to cover their sin at your feet May they find forgiveness full and free and a fresh start for such things you've promised to those who come in confession and repentance. 
You do your work as you please. For your own glory, we pray. Amen.